Hi, my name is Lindsay Adams, and you are listening to Mindful as a Mother. This podcast is not intended to be a substitute for therapy or the therapeutic relationship, and the information given in this podcast is purely for educational purposes and is not intended to replace the advice of a professional. Hey guys, I hope you had a wonderful week. This week I am talking with Natalie about foster care and adoption. She is super amazing, super knowledgeable, and her Instagram has a ton of evidence-based information broken down into digestible content pieces. So you should definitely go check that out. I will link her Instagram in the show notes. Natalie is a single mom to three boys, ages five, four, and eight months. She is a divorcee, mom by adoption and biological birth, former foster and miscarriage mama. Portland, Oregon is her home, and she is a professional photographer and adoptive parent coach by trade. And I will just say she's super amazing. So I, I, I just re-listened to this interview to edit the episode, and I love it. There's so many golden nuggets in here that I think I'm going to have to listen again and find like five more because such a good interview, so many helpful tips. So I hope you guys enjoy it as much as I do. And if you do enjoy it, please share, subscribe, rate, and review. Hey, Natalie. Hello. Welcome. How are you today? You know, to keep it all the way real, I am quite heavy and tired today (laughs) but Uh, I'm good overall it's just a heavy day with the world yes the world is a very heavy place lately yeah and I love how real you keep it both on your Instagram and just when you're talking about like hey this today's hard and that's okay yes that is what I'm here for keeping it real so tell everybody a little bit about you just a quick awesome quick intro would be I'm almost 29 years old um I'm a mother a single mother to three boys um one my firstborn son was adopted at birth while I was 20 weeks pregnant with my second born and no adopting him is not what got me pregnant and then I have a third permanent son um who I birthed last year during 2020 um, and then our family's interracial. Um, I was married for six years, so I'm a divorcee. Um, yeah, I'm an adoption, adoptive parent coach and a professional photographer. So that's kind of a synopsis. <laughs> and I, so I read your memoir to prepare for this and because I've always wanted <gasps> oh, to read yeah. it, but mm-hmm. this like gave me a deadline. Like I need to read it by yes. this day. So I, I, I don't know if you can binge a book, but I like yeah. blew through it. Mm-hmm. I was very emotional yeah. through the whole thing. Yep. And that's then when I got book. to the part, so I'm in Utah. <laughs> when I got to the part about you oh. coming to Utah to adopt, I was like, oh, we were meant to connect with each other. Yes, we were. Yeah, gosh, my memoir I wrote while still married. Um, I love my memoir. It's been read by so many people, which is, I don't know how to comprehend that. Um, But everybody that reads it has reached out. Everybody that has reached out to me that has read it has shared that it was emotional. And they pretty much, it's a big book, but they binge read it. So 
Yeah. It's like once yeah. I started, I could not stop. Mm-hmm. And I need you yeah. to release the second one because I feel like I was left <laughs> I on a <the> cliffhanger because <laughs> you were like you were. <laughs> still very married in the end. And I need to like, <laughs> and you have another <laughs> yeah. child and you fostered uh-huh. like there's yeah. a lot. There's a lot. So I, the second one I wrote most of it while in Cancun after my divorce, but, um, a lot of stuff ended up happening after I wrote most of it. And so it's been, I haven't opened it since, but it's time. It's time. So. Okay. Well, I'll be patiently waiting. (laughs) Sounds good. Okay. So how did you know that you were meant to adopt and then later foster? I just said later foster because I know the Mm -hmm. timeline of things, but Mm-hmm. I, you know, I saw that question and I thought that's an interesting question because people do talk about adoption as if, you know, they're like called to it. And I think to an extent, yes. And I'm not going to tell anybody that if somebody comes to me and says, God told me to adopt, I'm not going to be like, God didn't tell you that. <laughs> right. <laughs> Cause that's not my place. However, uh, cause I also used to say that, um, but I've learned a lot over the years and kind of processed through prayer and fasting even and um just processed with thinking through things and yeah I would say that as a child I always um I did I never had anybody in my life I had one friend who was adopted from Africa and she was black and I was in a very small white community and so that was my one experience pretty much my whole life um until I was an adult, but I kind of just like thought that would be a good thing. I had that mentality. Adopting is a good thing. You know, I'm basically saving kids is kind of the mentality I had. Um, and so I thought that all growing up and then as an teenager, no, as an adult in my marriage, I was diagnosed with endometriosis. Um, but before that, before we got married, we had talked about how we would want to adopt and it wasn't really, I don't know. We just like, we're like, yeah, let's adopt. It wasn't like this big conversation. It was just like before, like we were Skype, we dated long distance and that we were Skype, Skype dating. <laughs> I was like, one thing you should know about me is that I really want to adopt, but I really didn't have like some big reason. I just thought, why not? You know? So anyways, um, yeah, I don't know if that really answers the question, but I didn't do like some deep praying and fasting about it. I just was like, felt in me like, and not everybody feels that way. A lot of people really go through infertility before they come to the point of realizing that they feel like they're meant to adopt. A lot of people don't go through infertility, don't even try to have biological kids and still feel that they're meant to adopt, so to speak. Um, Anyways, now then we got into fostering and I would say that that was more like we had been awakened to the crisis of children needing Mm -hmm. families to stand Mm -hmm. in the gap and then we also went into fostering with this mindset of we are all for reunification we are like here to stand in the gap and then also if this child ends up needing a permanent home outside of their original home we hope that they don't have to move from our home, you know, like we'll be their last stop. So, um, and that wasn't like this big calling feeling. It was kind of like an overall feeling of like, these are vulnerable children in our community and in our nation. There's over 500,000 children already waiting to be adopted. Um, there are vulnerable children in our community who deserve a family. And we had 
we didn't have that much space, but we had some space and we didn't have that much income, but we had some income. And so we were like, let's just step into this, you know? Right. So, yeah. And how many children, so did you foster when you were married or afterwards? Yeah, but both. So oh, okay. I started fostering as a married woman. Um, we had two, so Sage and Ira were less than two years old when we started younger than two years old. Cause they're only five months apart. And then we started the, uh, foster care classes. It's like 24 hours worth. So mm-hmm. we were like, well, starting the foster care classes, isn't saying we're going to get a child placed in our home. Like tonight, it just means that we're going to take steps to be available for it. Cause we were still quite like, not sure about it, you know, so, you know, it's a big deal, but anyways like after the first class we ended up being placed with the kids but <laughs> that's not that's how it I mean I'm sometimes in. that's how it works but not all the time so anyways it's because we're very connected also in the foster community and so they they knew us already but anyways that was kind of our mindset was we will start the classes because starting home study starting classes isn't typically saying we're going to get a child placed in our home next week it's saying okay well let's like start this and right. say yes you know walk through the doors until n- until we decide not to or until a child moves in so um yeah so we had two more boys under the age of two so we had four boys under two that was crazy that sounds um, crazy that was crazy uh it was crazy Christmas and then they moved on to their current adoptive family and then we had a long-term placement of two girls who were siblings biologically they're cousins but they're siblings and they're from a sibling set of nine and they lived with us for like a year and some months um and so they lived with us through our like as a married couple and then through like a splitting which was not like they didn't even know because the way we did it and the way we co-parented through that and transitioned um like nobody ever, anyways. And then I parented them after my, like, anyways. And then one more baby girl who we were actually chosen to adopt, but that adoption was disrupted, but we had her for a number of months, so. Oh, wow. So you've had many foster children. You have a lot of experience, yeah, I would say. In like the year and a half, to almost two years of doing it, yes, five kids. So in addition to Sage and Ira. Wow. Yeah. That's a oh, and the age two. range too. Yeah. And the age range, I was shocked to experience that I would much rather prefer older children to a foster. Um, yeah. Like then I just, yeah, when I get to do it again, I will not be, I will likely not be open to younger children, but instead open to older children and maybe teens. So that's good. And I think there's a higher need for that as well because everyone wants a young kid or a baby yes they do so yes <laughs> so what would you say your parenting philosophy is yeah I like need to narrow that down into like a sentence but overall I would say I don't know if this like I don't know you could tell me if this what if this fits into a parenting philosophy um my hope as a parent is to help raise children, not who like behave a certain way necessarily, but like whose hearts 
are tended and mended to, like tended to, like whose souls and needs, like emotionally, mentally, spiritually, and physically are all met. Um, my parenting philosophy is that I'm not here to just like make children obey me, but I'm like, we're all like have our own trauma and shatteredness already, whether you're biological, foster or adopted child, adoptive child, um, but especially children not born of my womb, there's so many layers there. And so my job isn't as a parent, in my opinion, is not to just make them obey me and like just make them behave perfectly, but instead is to meet them in all the spaces that they exist in because they're all young and developing. And some of them are developing like quote unquote slower or delayed. And so, yeah, just really parenting the heart of my children and not just the behavior of my children. Does that make sense? Yes, that is a parenting philosophy. And (laughs) I kind of have this thing on here. I I talk with everyone about how everyone kind of comes on in their parenting philosophy is a definition of conscious parenting. It's just, we all describe it a little bit differently. And that's what it is like being conscious of your children's needs and their trauma and all all the things and making them their best selves, whatever that looks like. Yes, exactly. Conscious parenting that's the one (laughs) or they call it the respectful parenting mindful parenting Mm -hmm. whatever you want to call Mm -hmm. it it's all the same to me um so how did you get into being an adoptive parent coach Mm. you know somehow because okay somehow I've been doing this informally for like years like for years even since Sage was an infant my son who was adopted people have like come to me on Instagram or my blog um, and just like sought out coaching is what it is. They're seeking out like guidance. They're coming to me with uh, struggles and insecurities and fears that they have guilt that they struggle with. And they're asking me questions and I'm like, well, I don't feel like I'm a professional at this, but at the same time, I do have like, I feel like uh, I'm a Christian. I do feel like God has like gifted me with this like wisdom that I did not do anything for he just like put it in me I don't know (laughs) um and like I'm able to see things really clearly and help people walk through their own stuff and like kind of ask questions that um, help them understand themselves and their parenting philosophies or their parenting stances a little better or like their struggles and so over the years I've been doing it with foster and adoptive parents actually like a lot and so this year 2021 Um, I actually was doing a business course because I was like, you know what? Like, this is a lot of energy. (laughs) It's a lot of my time. It's emotional labor. Mm -hmm. Um, I can be paid for this. Like I bring a lot to the table. Um, I am really great at sitting with grace in the space that people are in and holding their hand, but not like and like holding their hand to walk into a better space and like a more free space because that's all it is, is we're not walking in freedom. But anyways, and so this year I've been building a business. I've been doing this amazing course, just trying to help me understand like my sole purpose in my business. And um, now I'm being paid for it, which is awesome. And I cannot wait to just continue building that business and serving. I want to make the most impact as possible. And so being able to do it as a business 
so that I can put as much time into it as possible. You know what I mean? Because my photography business also takes a lot of time. So if I have to pay all my bills with my photography business, I don't have time to actually do what I actually love, which is coach right. and help and support adoptive and foster parents and understanding trauma and their own trauma and all these things. Um, so yeah, does that make sense? Yes, it does. And I think, so one, I think you've always been a helper because you were, a, you were a doula, right? Like you helped was. Yes. like and the bir- yep. birthing process. You've always like helping with motherhood has always been a thing for you, yes. a, call- a calling for you. Yeah. And I also think that energetic exchange. So if it's financial, right, is important. Like you're giving someone this wonderful service and then paying mm-hmm. you for that. And that's something as females, I think society trains us to not be as comfortable with yes. and maybe as Christians as well, a little bit, but yes. like, it, mm-hmm. I think, I think it's good that you're stepping into being comfortable with like, I can pay my bills doing this. Yeah. Um, I'm like really working on mindset stuff regarding that because yeah, there's like a part of me that's like, you don't deserve to like make money, but like, hi, I'm actually doing a lot of emotional labor. And I also am like paying for things like zoom membership in a calendar booking site. Like I actually already have business fees and I'm currently in the process of creating like another business license for this. Like it is a business. And so the idea that I wouldn't deserve to be paid for things that, and I like have spent so many hours. I've spent so much money, hours, investment, listening to um, like doing TBRI trainings and going to conferences and reading books and podcasts and so it's not like I'm just like making stuff up as I go. It's mm-hmm. like, I have a lot of experience and knowledge and wisdom. And, you know, I'm like, I'm like fast tracking all the years I've spent to like, hi, let's talk about this in an hour for you. And let's like make movement for you in your journey in like an hour that took me a whole year, you know, does that make sense? Right. And as a that's therapist, valuable. <laughs> yeah. As a therapist that's worked in the foster care system here in Utah for seven years, your information in your reels and your posts is all evidence-based. It is all accurate. Yes. It's well-researched. And so it is nice. Like I I've shared your page with other foster parents, other people like awesome. going through this because it, it does, it makes it fun and interactive and easy to digest all these kind of big things like TBRI, yeah. which can yes. be boring sometimes, but is mm-hmm. very useful so useful. Yes. Thank you. I appreciate that so much. That's what I'm trying to do is try to make it digestible It is <laughs> in yes. little clips. Yes. And with lots of dancing. Oh. I mean, dancing makes everything. <laughs> Which I never danced until I was like divorced. So, and I don't know how to dance, but you know, I'm just like, this is part of my liberation is learning to just move my body and not care what anybody thinks about me. <laughs> yeah. I'm not there yet. I will get there one day. I will dance on a real will. You will. So what is the biggest challenge you have personally faced with fostering and or adoption? Um, with fostering, absolutely the system. I could oh, share yeah. a million ways uh-huh. that Me too. the children were like, you know, brought difficulties into my home, but that's not to me, it was the, the system. So, and it was you guys talking about with like caseworkers, right? Like the amount of caseworkers yeah. that children have yes. is insane insane 
caseworkers and then their attorneys were right. So here's like, you know, the attorneys, the caseworkers and the judges are all so spread thin between a million cases. They don't know these children. They see them for five minutes before a court hearing. They decide what they want to report to the judge, which is typically not even true. And I'm sorry, I have a lot of friends who are caseworkers and I, I just, I validate that they are overloaded and they're doing the best they can, you know? Mm-hmm. And they're also not getting paid near what they should be. They're also like secondary traumatized. And so it's just like so much going on. So like, I validate that, but also it's like foster parents should have more say in my opinion. Like I would write letters every single court hearing of a report back of to the judge and I'd read it out loud, but anything that I say, it doesn't hold near as much weight as caseworkers, mm-hmm. even though they barely know the child. So that was the biggest struggle um nobody listening to the therapist recommendation um yep I feel that (laughs) yeah and I think it's so hard to feel you watch these children's lives in the hands of the system pretty much and you're Mm -hmm. doing everything you can to help them and put them on the right path and you're just watching some like a train wreck and you have no control over it that's the hardest part for me I think is just like you're just watching these things happen and you can't do anything to change it innocent children that Mm -hmm. just deserve to be kids but don't get to be really so and then with infant adoption um which would also this would also translate into foster care just but it also um anyways a challenge that would be would be with infant adoption is specialists and doctors not being as trauma-informed as we would like them to be and completely dismissing or disvalidating womb trauma and saying things are typical behavior when definitely they're not because they're extreme and it's not typical behavior. Like, yes, it's typical, but it's intensified because of the brain. And so not getting services that he or she should could qualify that will support them it's not come out here to like get diagnoses for the sake of diagnosis nobody wants to put those diagnoses on their child but oftentimes diagnoses provide supports and so that has been a challenge since his birth so i am so glad you brought this up because it's not the children that are the challenge you brought this up because something I think people are unaware of and uneducated about when they go into an infant adoption or an adoption from birth is that there is attachment trauma and that attachment research shows that that attachment is formed in the womb. And I love that you called it womb trauma. So there, these things happen and you can grow up in the best home or the most loving environment and be adopted from birth and still have very, very real trauma. Yes. And most people adopted adoptive parents, the society in general is largely unaware of that. And so thank you so much for bringing that up. Yeah. We could talk a whole hour about that. Yeah. I'm very uh-huh. passionate about that because yes. it's just, yeah. Yeah. Cause then there's also like, we then compound the trauma by not validating their loss. Anyways, there's so many things anyways. Right. And I think as a a mother and I've never adopted, but um, Mm -hmm. I fostered, but as an adoptive mother, I think a lot of women struggle with acknowledging that because then they feel that it, 
doesn't validate their role in their child. It takes away. Yeah, it takes away. And it doesn't at all. But then we're just perpetuating the cycle of like needing to acknowledge that this trauma happened. And Mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that you're any less of a parent. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. And I have lots of feelings. That's actually a thing that I work through often with adoptive parents. So yes, it's very I, big yeah. Deal. yeah, I think every adoptive parent should work on that at some point, because yes. uh, I mean, I would say 95% of the time, an adopted child, if their adoption was closed, or doesn't know their birth parents, they eventually will want to. Yes, absolutely. So tell, this isn't, wasn't on my question list. Sorry to spring this one on you, but tell me about the different types of adoption and then what adoptions, what your adoption was with, uh, Sage is the one, right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so with infant domestic adoption, there's infant domestic adoption, uh, legally free foster children adoption and then international adoption, but with infant domestic adoption, private so you use either an agency or and or just an adoption lawyer um and that can go all sorts of ways but um you can you know when like the papers are signed or whatever or when you're like presenting yourself you present yourself in a family books to moms who are making adoption plans while they're pregnant and um they can say and you can say whether you hope for a closed semi-closed or open adoption Mm -hmm. and recently Angela Tucker and Amara which is an organization that everybody should know about um, did a video actually just about this and so I just want to throw that out there a few Angela Tucker made a video just about this so um, anyway so closed adoption um, is closed so you don't have any contact with each other the adoptive parents or the birth parents you don't have really any information you might get first names um you don't have visits nothing and then also what would fall into closed adoption is like the lack of talking about adoption not all the time but off sometime a lot of times especially like decades ago like just not talking about it not making space for adoption conversation in your home so like that can fall into that portion as well and then semi-open would be um having a third party and so the communication happens between the agency most likely or the attorney sometimes there's like a therapist maybe but I that is the one that ours started as but we really wanted it to be more open uh, for a number of reasons but one of the reasons was like well the agency could close right also, like sh- a lot of times, um, people are moving a lot. Um, when you're living in crisis, like you may end up moving a lot and hopping houses, not all the time, but a lot of times. And so I also was recognizing, like, she may not update the agency with her address, like, I or her email. Like, I just, you know, phone numbers change often. Like, I just did not want to lose contact with her. And so I wrote down my email address on a piece of paper before we said goodbye and gave that to her and was like, if you want to email us, like we're always open. And so I'm so glad I did that. So we then exchanged email addresses or she's emailed me that night. But anyways, um, so I would consider adoption, open adoption. However, we don't have visits. She lives across the nation. I hope that we will one day get to fly and visit her as well as birth dad, whom I reached out to when Sage was about six months old. 
Um, I, all I had was a name. Didn't even know if, he, I mean, I was told he knew about my son, but I wasn't sure. So that was a whole thing. Um, and so I have contact with both of them and bio aunts and bio grandmas, cousins. And so anyways, um, I, I consider our adoption open because I communicate with all of them. I send them pictures and then we have attempted a couple FaceTimes, but also like my heart is very open. Um, mm-hmm. The way we talk about it in our home is like often and frequent and open. And so that is kind of what the Angela's video was about recently was like, sometimes you're not able to have contact because of one reason or another. Um, but it's really about the adoptive parent's heart in allowing and making space for openness. And so Right. And giving the child that permission through your example to talk about those things and explore those relationships as they age. Yes. Michelle uh, Madrid Branch, who is also an adoptee, I interviewed her years ago. And she was saying how like most adoptees are not just going to bring up their birth parents. So like it is up to the adoptive parent to create that space and invite that space. And then if your child just like doesn't want to engage in that moment that's fine too but like create those spaces so Mm -hmm. yeah and and kids get their permission through us modeling things for them so if they see that we can handle that because a lot of times they're afraid to like hurt feelings Mm -hmm. but if we show them that we can handle that and that we're here for us they will eventually be too yes I have been told by a number of times by a number of children who I have raised that in the heat of dysregulation and anger like you're not my real mom yeah yeah I'm I have never responded that I just know where that's coming from right and so I feel like in those moments when I'm able to like be like okay well you can think that but also like all moms are real so (laughs) so when I like respond just like not hurt and offended and like taking it personally right and making it about me that is an example of showing them well, I can handle the fact that you have two moms and you can say anything you want. I mean, not really, but you know what I mean? Like you can yeah. try to make me wounded and maybe I'll go cry in my shower later. But like with you, I'm going to model that I can handle the hard crap that adoption comes with, you know? Right. So. Well, you're amazing. Um, <laughs> Thank you. What? So a question that got submitted a few times was mm. what is your recommendation or advice if the person's spouse or partner is not open to fostering, Mm. but it's something that feels really important to you? It's a really good um, question that I was asked a lot when we were in the infant adoption process. Um, I have a few thoughts. Um, One would be like, ask them why, just ask why, why do you not want to? Um, Because typically it's a fear. Typically it is, um, a common fear is that you cannot like you won't be attached or love or bonded Mm -hmm. a child not born to you right like that is a fear and that's scary to open to be like I'm gonna welcome these kids in and what if I don't like them um right so that's a fear so I think even just talking about that and then being like well we love each other and we're not biologically connected right I don't know like that's like and then um also um another fear is you know, getting too attached and then having to say goodbye. And I would just challenge that with, um, these kids need you to get attached. And guess what, when they're removed from you, either to go to another foster or an adoptive home or their biological family, 
you have each other and you're an adult who should have coping skills that can work through grief. This child doesn't necessarily have any of that. And so like, you're, you're going to be okay. Like, yes, it's hard, but like the children deserve it. So that's my other thing with that. And then the other thing is I've always just said, well, if, if your spouse is like tiny bit open, what you could propose is let's just sign up for the classes and, and take them and see, you know, let's just sign up for the classes and take them and just kind of learn to educate ourselves or let's attend a workshop or an online training by an adoptee or former foster youth, right? And just learn a little bit more because a lot of it is lack of proximity. A lot of it is not having people in your community who do it. So you just like are totally ignorant, which is fine. We all have ignorances, right? Like I'm ignorant. We all have different ignorances. Mm -hmm. And it's just being ignorant of like, these children are actually real children (laughs) that you can't actually love. And anyways, uh, does that kind of... Yeah. Yeah, A lot of the hesitation that I see and have seen is about like really just not knowing what fostering looks like and what the day-to-day is and what the process is. So I would recommend like educating as much as possible and then having open communications about one, why it's important to you and to, you know, your spouse or your partner's fear. So exactly what you said, right. And just keeping that communication open. And before we fostered, me and my husband talked about it for like six or seven months back and forth. And then one day he just came to me and said, okay, I'm ready. And I think just because we kept talking and kept educating ourselves and obviously I work in foster care. So I just share stories and things like that. Like that would, you know, that helped him get to a space where he was ready. Yes. So, yes, I agree. Like just talking about it and honestly, just asking that question, well, what is, what is make, what makes you nervous or what's the pushback? Because I think we so often don't think about why Mm -hmm. we feel or are afraid of things. And I think just really sitting down and asking that to our spouse is helpful for them and us to just understand each other better. So anyways. So something you're super passionate about is educating about all of the complex issues related to transracial adoption. Yeah. What is your biggest (laughs) tip for someone who is looking to adopt transracially or has adopted transracially? Yeah, it's a, it's a rough one. Yeah. (laughs) I feel, especially today, um, you know, when there's, when there's murders and lives lost, black lives lost, uh, just so unnecessarily, it feels extra raw and heavy on those days. Um, so anyways, sorry. Um, I just get really passionate because I just, if you are a white person, Mm -hmm. transracial adoption means any race adopting another race. So it can be any other race, but I'm white mom. So I talk to white moms. Okay. So like, I will talk to anybody, but my, I don't feel that it is my lane to be speaking to like a Latina mom adopting a black child. You know what I mean? Like my lane is like white motherhood. Um, and so And so here's my piece is that because my lane is white motherhood, my most biggest advice for transracial adoption, no matter the race of the child, nationality, race, ethnicity, color, is to surround yourself. And I mean this, people say this all the time, but then they're not actually doing it. Like have friends and mentors 
and pastors and leaders, coaches who are of that child's race, who are and learn from them. Find Instagram accounts of black and brown people who are sharing what it is to live in their bodies because we are so white and part of the privilege of whiteness is like not having to think about the fact that we're white. Mm -hmm. And part of that privilege is just, there's so much there. And so anyway, so just like my biggest recommendation is like when you're doing your black child's hair and you need help, seek out a black mom friend or a Mm -hmm. black salon or barber, you know, like we should be, we should be learning from people who are the same child's race. And not only because like white people haven't been raising these kids for generations, right? Like, but also because like our children need to see that we value people that look like them, like representation matters and God made color and culture and representation lack of it or proof of it is showing whether we actually value people that look like our kids or not. And so Mm -hmm. I'm so passionate about that. And so anyways, if that means moving to a new neighborhood or a new city or changing churches, like I root you on, you can do it. You can do it. Um, yeah. So my biggest piece is to default to people of color. I should not be the one teaching you how to take care of your black child's hair. I know how to take care of their hair. It shouldn't be me teaching you, you know? Right. And I, yeah, I think, well, there's just so much there and so much to unpack with that. I also think the, I love the surrounding yourself and your child with people who are going to support them and can teach you about their race and their culture. And I think that shows them that you accepted them for who they are, because if you don't do that, the message you are sending to your child is that you don't accept them. Mm -hmm. And, and you may think that you love is enough because I love my child, but love is not enough. I have read from countless adoptees, black or just brown, doesn't have to be black, African-American, but brown adoptees who were raised in white families. And they're like, yeah, I mean, my whole white family, like my immediate family and extended family, they all loved me, but I still didn't feel accepted because of so many microaggressions and my parents never stood up for me and like all these things. And I'm like, that will not be my child's experience. Like if you cannot accept that he is black and what that means, then we are we can say hi once in a while over text. Like we're not going to just be hanging out, you know? Right. Anyway, sorry. That's a whole thing, but no, (laughs) I I agree. And I'm sure it's something you deal with frequently. Yes. And it's another thing that comes up with adoptive parents. And so I have helped countless adoptive parents write letters to their families, explaining the importance. Angela Tucker, who I mentioned earlier, she's a black adoptee. She has led um, workshops Four, this is amazing. And if you're a hopeful adoptive parent, she has led workshops for entire extended family members. This one couple was like, hey, so we may or may not be adopting a child of another race. And if you want to be in our child's life, you have to attend this anti-racism workshop with us. Isn't oh, that so amazing? Bold and amazing. It shouldn't even be bold, but it is. And so I just am like, wow, like if we could all be like that, then our children wouldn't be so damaged by us also, you know? Right. Oh, that's amazing. 
you know, I love it. I love it. Okay. So this is the last question that was submitted and it's kind of a longer one, but it is a, someone who welcomed a five-year-old boy into Mm. their home, um, after a disrupted placement, he was Mm. with his former foster family for eight months, but has been in care for almost three years. He refers to the previous foster family as mom, dad, and brother. She says, I'm not pushing him to start calling me mom or anything like that, but how do I help him understand that this is his new home? He seems comfortable here, but he seems to think it's temporary. Yeah. Oh, sweet baby boy. Um, One thing to remember, and you could actually speak more to this, but one thing to remember is that typically children in foster care regress and are developmentally, emotionally younger than their chronological age. Yep. Yep. And especially when they're, every time you remove a child from any home and put him in another home, he will regress at least six months, Mm -hmm. if not more. Right. So like, we just keep doing that to kids. (laughs) And so I think the first thing to remember is he's not emotionally, mentally eight. So, and it's also important to remember that. So why I say that is because it's going to take some time for his brain to retrain Mm -hmm. that he moved, right? And Mm -hmm. to get, it's going to take time to retrain his brain of who's mom and dad. Um, I would say coming up with a phrase, I would also love to hear your advice as a therapist, but coming up with a phrase like, yes, um, that was mama and daddy. And now we are in the, now we, now you live with us. Like, sorry, I'm like stumbling through cause it's on the, but, um, now you live here and we are the mom and dad in this house, but you can call us auntie Susan or Susan or mom or something like that. You know, um, a lot of my foster friends use aunt and uncle instead of mom and dad. Um, but whatever fits for you. And so that's what I would do with my girls who were older. I would say, yes. Um, cause they did come from a different foster home. Yes. They were mom and dad in that house, in this house where you live now, we are the mom and dad, but you can call us miss Natalie or Natalie or whatever, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think just kind of helping just the, the same phrase over and over, like, yeah, I'm not, now I'm saying it over and over again, yep, but you know what it's I mean, working, having yep. a phrase of yes, in that house, but now you live in this house, and in this house, we are the mom and dad of this house, and you can call us, here are some options, um, so yeah, that's what I would, yeah, awesome, yeah, Some things I love about that are that you're letting the child choose what to call you. I love that you're giving them options because this poor little boy has had no control. And he said he's been in care for almost three years. He's five years old. So that's like, you know, most of his life. It doesn't say, I don't know, but how many foster homes he's been in. So I don't know how many times he's moved or what the situation is, but like giving him any kind of control, I think is amazing. So giving him those options of even what to call you. Right. And then just recognizing that because, you know, if he's been in a bunch of different foster homes or just even just one or two or three foster homes, that's still too many. Um, if recognizing that that any five-year-old that change is huge. And so just, I would just give him some time to adjust to the, the rules, the expectations, kind of how your family works 
and just keep reminding him that, you know, those, he can call those people, mom and dad and that, but in this house, you know, exactly yeah. like you said, and, yeah. and just, yeah, giving it time. I think time is the biggest thing in this case and just doing yes. everything you can to make him feel safe and comfortable because once a child feels safe, that's when the regression stops and the progression starts. So. Yes. Yes. And I think coming up with phrases, like when kids are like, how long am I staying here for? Or something like that. I would always have a phrase like, well, currently the plan is, and I just have the same plan. Currently the plan is you will be with us until you're able to go back to mom and dad's house, like your biological mom and dad or whatever you refer to them as. Um, And so having just some phrases like that is so helpful for kids. And they may ask you a million times, but like just having the same phrase that they can count on, you can even write them down on your like mirror. So you remember them or in your notes, but I think it's very valuable, especially because their brains, their synopsis are all fragmented. And so just their poor brains can hardly process when they're in this regression mode. And so, yeah, I love yeah it's just like I just feel that I feel it and it's hard and it's heavy but um yeah it's creating that space I also sorry one more thing is that I also often with my girls and with my son um say things like I do follow-up things sometimes like yes that's you know that was the mom and dad in that house and then blah 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 but also it's okay. Or, and also it's okay to be sad that you're mm-hmm. not in that house anymore. It's mm-hmm. okay to be confused and like validating right back to that, creating that space. But just, I think we forget the actual power of literally just saying those things. Yeah. Like it's okay to miss mom and dad yes. from that house yeah. and be sad that you're not there anymore. Yes. And just validating that for them, they will begin to feel safe. Right. And then they'll be able to understand, oh, this is where I'm here for right now. Right. And something I always like to recommend to foster or mostly foster parents is bringing, so like telling them the current plan, but then bringing them back to the present moment, because there's so much unknown in the foster system and things tend to change so quickly that especially if they're older kids and they've been in the system, they know that like things change rapidly. So there's a lot of fear about, well, what if this happens? What if this happens? When am I moving? Where am I? Exactly. And just saying like, okay, this is the current plan. And today you are in my home. And we are going to school and then we have soccer practice Mm -hmm. and then just bringing them back to like, this is what we're doing today, you know, just, (laughs) and giving them what predictability you can, when you Mm -hmm. can, because they literally have it nowhere else in their life besides with you. So, yes. And literally, yes, just today is what we have, but today we are together. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Today we are family. (laughs) Yes. And yeah. Yeah. And just, I I don't know what the judge will say in three months when you go back to court, but for the next three months, this is what we're doing. We're taking a vacation on this day. You have piano, you have whatever, you know, just to, and it just helps their little brains come back to the moment. Okay. I am safe today so that they can regulate and, you know, form relationships and function. Amen. (laughs) Okay. My very last question. I ask everyone this one. I need to hear a mom fail. Girl. <laughs> how, how do I pick? I've been trying to think of that. 
Oh man, Ira gives me a lot of mom fails, let me tell you. Like for instance, yesterday, what led up to this moment was a lot of mom fails of him, first of all, he was peeing on his bedroom floor to make me mad, to get back at me, okay? Ooh, I like him, he's feisty. I love a feisty kid. so feisty. Half the time I have to like really not laugh. Like I'm like, I can't, how does he even think of this? This is how I used (laughs) for Four has been rough with him. Well, four was rough with both, but four has been, wow, he is. So yeah, I would say the other day we, on the weekends, we do like a fun thing. And every weekend we do the same fun thing, sleep in mom's room. We can have popcorn. We watch a movie. They wake, wake up way too early, get all the cereal out. And I'm like, why, why are you getting the cereal out on my bed? Like we could have cereal. I, why are you getting the cereal? Anyways, it's a whole mess. <laughs> so he's dumping the cereal everywhere okay. as a joke. Cause he thinks it's funny. And I'm like, okay. Oh my gosh, Ira. So then I get up and I'm like, Ira, you have to clean up this mess. And he's like, I'm not cleaning that up. And I'm like, you have to, cl- you made this mess. You clean it up. And he was started, you know, kicking me being four and trying to bite me and yep. started kicking the bowl more. And I was like, Ira. So then I was like, go sit in your room while I go clean up the mess, which timeouts, time ins. I know here we are. And so he's sitting in his room and I said, you can play with the baby while I'm cleaning up the mess. So he's right. playing with the baby. Well, then the baby crawls out and I'm like, oh no. So then I go in his room and he's just peeing on the floor. Does this count as a mom fail? And I'm yeah. just like, I don't even know what to do. I'm like trying not to laugh, but I'm also really angry. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, what is happening? I was like, are you peeing on the floor? <laughs> I was like, what? And he was like, no. And I was like, I'm gonna, we live with housemates above us. I was like, I'm going to tell Jessica and Sterling. And he's like, no, you're not. Anyway, I don't <laughs> even know. I don't even know. I don't even know. <laughs> I don't even know what I would do in that situation. I think I would just be like, I think there's times where you just got to like shrug your shoulders and just keep moving. Cause there's, there's no, like there's yes. And sometimes with kids that just stops the spiral, right? Because you guys were in like a little power struggle over cleaning up and all that. And it's just like, if if you just kind of like, okay, go pee in the toilet and move on. Which stopping my power struggle was for Ira was like, okay, just go sit in your room while I clean it up. You know, like that's typically a stop of our power struggle, but clearly it wasn't. He like, needed to have the last word yes. or pee or whatever that was. He he also, I did a reel of him as a baby. He was the fattest baby you'll ever see. And I'd used the voiceover, damn boy, he's thick. <laughs> and I used that reel and he will just walk around saying, damn boy. And I'm like, Ira, stop saying that. I love it. Laugh. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my gosh. Anyways, he's just a whole bunch of mom fails for me. So <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Mine are like that too. Mine always dump cereal oh. and freaking popcorn out on the oh. floor. Yes. And the kernels. I'm just, I got a yeah. baby who's trying to eat them. I'm, yeah. Yeah. It's a whole mess. Yeah. Oh, the baby putting things in their mouth. I do not miss that. Constant. Yeah. I mean, that's full of fails too, technically, right? He's just putting socks in his mouth. Oh, hey, it's just me. Are you ready for the mom fails? Gonna keep them short this week because the episode was a little bit longer than normal. I also am going to put a pause on my girl's birth story and we will conclude that one next week. So, here we go with the mom fails. There, there is a theme to this week's mom fails, and I did not do this on purpose. It just kind of worked out this way. But the theme seems to be death and dying. So 
Here is the first one. My eight-year-old came up to me today and randomly said, Mom, did I die? And I said, yes, welcome to hell. And he stared at me like I was the actual devil. He was fine and he pranked me back real good shortly after, but I feel I may have gone a bit too dark for an eight-year-old. My thoughts are, as long as he wasn't upset by it and he knew you were kidding, then you're probably good there. I am a pretty sarcastic person by nature, so I tend to give more sarcastic responses. And uh, yeah, sarcasm is a language that I'm fluent in, and so I can appreciate it. And I think we have to be careful with kids because they can take things very literally. But it's also important to teach them how tone plays into things and what is sarcastic and what is a joke and not true. So I love that one. The next one is I thought I had a UTI. So after being at the park with friends, I swung by an urgent care hoping I could get in real quick. My friend stayed in the car with the kids and I just ran in real quick. The wait was too long so I set an appointment for later and came back out to the car. My friend asked what happened and I jokingly said, I only have two weeks left to live. And then I told her about the appointment. Apparently, my five-year-old had only heard the two weeks to live part. Then this mom includes the facepalm emoji, which I use probably daily. Anyway, so facepalm emoji. For the next week, she had a lot of questions about how long a week was and brought up to her dad what I said, but he blew it off thinking she was joking. A week went by before we were sitting down for dinner and my five-year-old seemed to be having a very hard time. When I asked her about it, it was brought to light that she thought I really only had two weeks to live and had been trying to figure out countdown those two weeks. I felt horrible, in all caps, and apologized profusely. This is something I could totally see myself doing because I am so sarcastic. And I forget sometimes that kids are very literal. And so sometimes I'll say things and then I'll have to be like, mm, I'm joking. Oh, just kidding. So yes, I could totally see myself doing this and I feel for this mom because I'm sure she did feel terrible that her poor girl thought that she was going to die for a week. I feel like I had so many mom fails over the past week that I thought I need to share this on the podcast. I need to share this on the podcast. And now when I think back, I can't remember any of them. And I can't decide if that is a blessing or not. But I'm going to go with it's a blessing. Because maybe I don't want to remember my mom fails. Anyway, so this week I'm going to share with you a dad fail that I personally witnessed. And it is not my husband who committed the dad fail, but my brother. So with my brother and my nephew this past weekend and my nephew had this little toy that had like a plastic thing in it and you squeeze it and it shoots this plastic thing out. So they were kind of shooting it back and forth at each other playing around and my brother shoots it and hits his son in the eye and his son started crying. And that made me think like, (laughs) I'm sure 99% of dad fails involve an injury of some kind or like goofing around and ending up in some kind of injury. So I thought I would share that with you. I'm sure you can relate. I'm sure your children's father figure or father has done something similar to accidentally injure them. So anyway, 
Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review. And don't forget to be peace, be love, be mindful as a mother. If you want more of Mindful as a Mother, you can find me on Instagram at Lynn's underscore Adams LCSW. Once again, at Lynn's L-I-N-D-S underscore Adams LCSW. Thank you.